0: Hello, you're very welcome to RTE's Your Politics. I'm Anya Lawler and today I'm joined or will be presently by David Murphy already with me, Paul Cunningham and Sandra Hurley for your weekly take on all things politics from Leinster House. Uh, And the debate about neutrality today, Paul, uh, decidedly hot
1: tempered. Yeah, and that's because um, starting next week, there's going to be what's called a consultative forum on international security, which is being promoted by the Taoiseach, or uh, by the Tóniste, uh, Michal Martin. I'm still <coughs> making that mistake. Um, and it's going to be in Galway and Cork um, next week and then two days in Dublin the following week, Monday and Tuesday. And basically how uh, Michal Martin is presenting it, that given the um, what's happening in Europe with regard to the Russian invasion, given what's happened with cyber security, that is now time to re-examine that. Ireland's place in the world, our security policy. And that includes things like Neutrality, that includes things like defence policy, that includes things like alliances. And when you've got all of that in one pot, it's going to spark off things. And so it was Mick Barry of Solidarity who raised this question in the Doyle today, talking about this was effectively a stitch-up, a stitch-up by the government to soften them up, to spend billions into defence buying war machines, to make sure that the Irish government is softened up and the population softened up into joining NATO. Absolute rubbish, declared Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, who was standing in um, for Micheál Martin today. But that's just the start of it. This is sort of a big debate. And yes, it is going to get Mm hot-tempered.
0: And it went on, didn't it, Sandra? We had Paul Murphy and the Thánaiste having... um,
2: well, anyhow, Tanishta had to withdraw the particular phrase he used, didn't he? Yes, they really locked horns this morning. There was defence questions and uh, Paul Murphy was saying that the forum, this security forum is stacked with sort of uh, pro-NATO people. He said there was only one anti-war person. And he said that he was repeating the same kind of stuff as Mick Barry, essentially saying that it's a stitch up and... Mihol Martin was really incensed by all of this. He said that it was an ab- abhorrent form of politics and he said uh, he hoped that they would never be in power, that they'd put the jackboot on people, they wouldn't allow freedom of speech. Now, Paul Murphy, very angered by that remark, he did ask Mihol Martin to withdraw it and later on Mihol Martin did so. But yeah, there's real anger around this. Of course, this is kind of core people before profit territory. They are going to mount protests outside this forum next week. But I think some others in the opposition are kind of annoyed about this forum as well, because there's no opposition politicians. Uh, its government members, Eamon Ryan, will be there. Obviously, it's the those idea in the first place. I, I think there is also it, the forum is going to look at neutrality and other things. There is an emphasis, though, on um, definitions of neutrality. It's and it's going to finish up with a discussion on the future of neutrality. And I think one in one area, the direction of travel here is clear. All three coalition parties have now said that in relation to the triple lock, this insistence on a UN resolution should be dropped because it's really mm-hmm. difficult to get that UN resolution because Russia is on the Security Council. So uh, the Green Party recently on board having... Uh, discuss this widely within the party. So I I think eventually we would be seeing some sort of proposal coming to government and then going to the Oireachtas to change the current form. It did
1: bubble up when Finnegay were having their think in last year. Um, Simon Coveney then was still the... Defence Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister and he raised that exact point that if you have a triple lock which means the Cabinet has to pass it that the Doyle has to pass it and the UN Security Council and Russia is a permanent member state then Russia is effectively able to d- dictate yeah. Irish government policy so that's one of the real um, pulls but once again you have from um, the other side is that what are you trying to do this for this has served us well for decades why are you trying to change it now
0: and it's been interesting isn't it the positioning of all the parties on this because we've had people before Profit, if you like, to, you know, be, being at the forefront of the attack against gov- you know the government approach uh, to this discussion, and Sinn Fein, who would you know traditionally have had quite similar views, there's been you know a subtle, some subtle repositioning going on. So so this is an interesting debate on all sides, isn't
3: it? I, I think one of the interesting things is that um, it's not just about the politics of, a, and not just about the question of neutrality. There are also some concrete things that are going to be discussed at these consultative forums. For instance, there's going to be a section looking at the effect of the HSE cyber hack cost around 100 million euro to sort out that. And that was a, a direct attack essentially on Ireland's uh, IT infrastructure. And So it's the
0: changing nature of the threat
3: and back to yes. those undersea cables. It is the changing. Well. Now, yeah. the, the, the undersea cables are another big issue. Obviously, a lot of them going transatlantic, go past Ireland and you know we know that in the UK GCHQ has brought in uh, large companies which are involved in laying these strategically important undersea cables to look at the security around them to what extent should the British Navy get involved in monitoring in monitoring all of that so What is Ireland doing around that? Like that is clearly Mm. a vulnerability. Do we have the capability to know what's going on in the skies above us? Do we have the capability to know what's going on in the seas and oceans around us? So I think in that context those practical things are going to be very interesting to look at. But again, there is this concern that this is a kind of a, a government forum with government voices and they're controlling the narrative. So it, I, th- I I think as well we need to listen to the voices outside.
1: It is worth teasing out though the question you raised there just in relation to Sinn Féin who had been avowedly against sort of European policy and security over many years and we've now got a new spokesperson on foreign affairs, Matt Carty, and with him we've got a new direction. So for example, if there are PESCO missions out there that Sinn Féin is saying they're not going to pull the Irish troops out. Instead, they're going to look at any new measures and be able to consider them in the light of a new government should Sinn Féin be part of that new, new government. So you can see within Sinn Féin, that's a softening of its position. It's a bit more nuanced. It's not absolute, as we see from PBP and Solidarity.
0: So this debate is going to continue and we'll obviously be talking about it more as uh, the month unfolds. But the other debate that's going to continue, uh, in in fact, it looks like it's going to drag on a little longer than we thought, is the debate about the nature restoration law. This was being voted on at a key European Parliament committee today. We had Eamon Ryan at one stage, didn't we, come in and say it got through that committee? Not quite.
1: Well he, he, he came into exactly he was he was in the doyle and he was taking environmental questions and he was answering he's being pressed on this by Holly Kearns, the leader of the Social Democrats, who's declaring herself a farmer and knowing what um, farmers need and want. And then he referenced the fact that this had been passed by the European Parliament. But one always has to remember this policy um, didn't get passed. It's still going to be um, debated. The voting will continue on the 27th of June, I believe. But the Parliament is only one part of anything when it comes to Europe. You've also got the Council of Ministers, that's effectively the Member States, and you've also got the Commission. And at the end of this process, all three will have finalised a position and they'll go into something called trialogue, in which they try and batter out some form of compromise. So. Don't get too excited by whatever the Parliament decides at the end of the month. This has got some way to mm-hmm. go yet.
0: It's been interesting, though, hasn't it? We've seen the interaction between political divisions here and political divisions in Europe. Finagales' criticisms, kind of reflecting the EPP leading the opposition to the to this within the yeah, European
2: Parliament. Yeah, in some ways, uh, and the accusation from some in Europe is that the EPP is taking this very hardline position against a lot of the Green Deal positions of uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen because they feel it will play well for them ahead of the elections next year. And I suppose that goes to the point that others would say that this has been really politicised, even the language around it. You know, are you calling it a flooding of land or a rewetting of land? Flooding is a very loaded word and we've heard it used by a lot of Irish politicians as well. Interesting, though, I think some of the Fine Gael MEPs not going quite as far uh, as others in the EPP. They've been a little bit more moderate in their mm. positions towards this, but there are divisions in government. The Taoiseach, Leo Radker has said that this law goes too far. Eamon Ryan clearly is not advocate. He said. Yes, radical, Yes, radical, exactly. So uh, it does seem very politicised, and there seems to be a lot of kind of misinformation around what it might actually mean in practice.
1: I mean, from the, the Fine Gael MEPs, the thing that they did in the European context was that the, Europe, the EPP members walked out And even though people like Sean Kelly are part of the EPP, they said that that was the wrong thing to do, that one should stay in the room and negotiate. So you could see that there was a difference between the Irish MEPs who are part of EPP and the EPP's leadership. So expect
0: that one to run and run. And the other thing that's running and running, David, is uh, interest rates. The bad news today, of course, uh, the ECB increasing interest rates. And again, against a backdrop of opinion polls, rest of parliamentary parties and backbenchers and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael uh, increasing calls even there O'Brien saying yeah we'll have to look at this question of mortgage interest relief put all of that in context for us.
3: Well I think the first thing is we've now got interest rates up at three and a half percent. Second thing to bear in mind is that it looks as if they will continue to increase but at a slightly lower rate so today we had the European Central Bank raising rates by quarter of a percent The other rate hikes have been uh, at most of them have been around half a percent. So we can see this. They're going to start tapering. In other words, we will see smaller rate increases as time goes on. The critical thing is how high is inflation and is it above 2% and what do they think it's going to be? So they said, we think that inflation in the eurozone is going to be above 2% into 2025. So that means they've got more work to do in order to uh, try to control inflation, which is their main job. So uh, we will probably see an interest rate increase uh, next month again in July. They usually take a month off during August and we'll see what happens in September. So I think those rate increases are going to continue to come and then you get more pressure on the government to do something about it. But the thing about all of this is they're increasing interest rates to dampen demand. If government reacts to it by giving people more money, that stimulates demand. And this is the concern of the Irish Central Bank that the government here in Dublin will actually take measures which would have the opposite effect of interest rates, and they don't like the look of and that. Sinn
1: Fein's Pierce already says it can be targeted to the small group of people who are put to the pin of their collar, and that basis won't have an impact. So that's one thing. And the second thing is when we try to talk about it in this in the podcast, but maybe just too big and deep, which is that nothing's the, too big and deep. <laughs> the, the, the European that. Central Bank is one instrument, which is ratcheting up interest rates. Like that's it. And the question has to be, is that the only thing that the ECB should have? And is it because its mandate is so limited that if it had more powers, more tools, it would be able to be a bit more nuanced in how it does? As it currently is constituted, it's jack up rates and if people get squashed by them, so be it.
0: But equally, and wasn't this also referred to in the Dáil today, the central bank data that people who, for instance, were on the track of mortgages benefited on, you know, the plus side for many, many years. And now, obviously, they're getting squeezed more, yeah. those of them whose loans have been sold yeah, onto so the institutions. Yeah, there's so many factors in
2: this because are you rewarding people if you helped people with mortgage interest relief who were already able to buy a home? These are people who own an asset or will ultimately own an asset when they've paid off the loan. There's lots of people who can't buy houses at the moment. So there's the question of fairness. What about doing something for renters? And I think the government is very uh, concerned about all of that. If they help one cohort, they have to help others. That said, I think it's a tough sell for the government to tell people that tracker mortgage holders, that, you know, you have to take the pain here for the good of the rest of Europe to help get inflation down. Sinn Féin have seen an opening here. They've seen a vulnerability. They've been banging this drum on mortgage interest relief for the past year. They clearly feel it plays well for them. Just
3: on the trackers, I think, you know, people need to think about a couple of things here. First one is the people with trackers. Generally, those mortgages are older. They're phased out um, during the financial crash. So many of those people are much, much further along in relation to paying their mortgages. And because they're much more, f- more f- further along, um, they've less exposure to interest rates. Uh, as Sandra says, you know, they have benefited from the good times when interest rates yeah. were completely on the floor. However, there are people on standard variable mortgages Um, who would be more exposed if the banks pushed through all of those rate increases. And ultimately, what's going to happen is the banks will have to pass on the rate increases to savers. And when they do that, they will have to pass them on to standard variable mortgage holders as well.
0: And this is where we're getting the clash. I mean, it's a long way to go to Budget Day. It's a long, hot summer, we hope. Ahead. And we
2: started early.
0: Yes, we certainly have started early. And you saw Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath this week at the National Economic Dialogue. Is that what it was called or forum? Yeah. And, um, you, you know, and they're, they're trying to talk about prudence mm-hmm. and windfall taxes and rainy days ahead. But equally, and, you know, we saw it at the parliamentary party meetings, you know, because particularly in Fine Gael, they feel we had all this money before we didn't spend it and we lost it at the polls.
3: There was a hilarious line in their press release announcing the... Um, uh, dialogue which they had in Dublin Castle on Monday where they said in really stark terms we will not be reaching firm conclusions at this event <laughs> yeah. so, and it was it, it all seemed to hark back to the fact that we had the three Fine junior ministers reached their own firm conclusions about a thousand euro tax cut in the budget but there was going to be none of that this was all going to be about laying out the landscape but the real landscape is going to be laid out when they get the economic uh, summer statement in July, um, which will give them a good picture regarding what's going to be happening with the public finances. But you could see that
1: um, Pascal Dunhu who was being nuanced at that particular meeting, he was talking about it would be unforgivable, unconscionable that you could have two credit events within the same generation referencing the crash that happened and where we are now. And this was in step with um, Finance Minister Michael McGrath and his call for prudence. Mm-hmm. And yet at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, we've heard that he was saying the objective of the budget is to put money back in workers' pockets. So once again, you're getting... You're getting two messages at the same time. That little um, dangle of cash.
2: And there seems to be backbenchers as well, government backbenchers almost outdoing each other to call for increases to the pension. So if you remember, traditionally, we always had Willy O'Dea and Fianna Fáil calling for an increase. Now we've heard of Fianna, of Fianna calling for... Oh, it's a fiver. Well, it's gone up inflation, you see. It's now 15 euro. We've even heard 20 euro. Nasa Haurigan, who is outside the Green Party at the moment, talking about 25 euro. Uh, Interesting as well to note at the National Economic Dialogue, the Taoiseach Leo Vradker saying that, you know, we had to be careful about being too cautious. So he certainly seemed to be at odds with the financial ministers, Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue, and he's certainly playing to a different constituency. It's early
1: early enough to be able to play that game and then they all get around the table and sort it out.
2: Yeah, indeed. And
0: when those numbers do come in and we move on a sec, but when those numbers do come in, I mean, it really is hard for people who are feeling the pinch. and A lot of people have been with all the cost of living pressures, you know, to have (laughs) there's the government with loads of money and that's. That's our money, and
3: yes. They want well, this some house back. this is this this, this this is the tricky thing about the surplus. It's um, you know it's bad not having money, but uh, having lots of money can be bad too. I mean, the thing is, they don't really know how long this uh, gold rush of money from corporation tax is going to continue. And if they stitch it into current spending yeah. and it suddenly <clears throat> stops, they would be left in a horrible situation in terms of having to make really significant budget cuts. That's what they're terrified of, really.
0: The other set of numbers that politicians have been looking at closely this week, that opinion poll in the Irish Times, the Ipsos going back to MR, MRBI it used yes. to be, and a, a record low for Fine Gael, was it?
1: Well, what they're saying is that the first thing is that they dropped four points, so they're now on 18%, and they're in third place behind Fianna Fáil, who gained three. So when Fine Gael drops and Fianna Fáil gains, that automatically sets off alarm bells. I think they said um, Fine Gael hadn't been lower since 1994, which is another thing. And then a third dimension too, if you looked behind the data a little bit, was that sort of of the older age group, there seemed to be a shift from Fine Gael to Fianna Fáil, a third alarm bell for Fine Gael. So we are still mid-election cycle. I mean, we're talking about the Europeans and locals, May, June, and then the general election sometime after that. So it's early days. But it was interesting that Mm-hmm. On, the Fino, on the Fine Gael side, the parliamentary party meeting where Leo Varadkar had to come out and defend his position due to low polling numbers, got a round of applause, lots of ministers rallied to his cause. And then the very next day, Fine Gael was down four points and his own personal rating had slid, I think, from 43 to 37% as well. So there's an issue there.
2: And a question for Sinn Féin too. Yes, Sinn Féin dropping back as well, uh, back to 31%. Now, they're still well out in front, but it, it does suggest if you add up the other numbers that that uh, Sinn Féin aren't quite in a position to say comfortably they're definitely going to lead an next government. The question also is where they're going to get their coalition partners from. But I think a lot of focus at the moment, definitely on Fine Gael, I would agree with Paul. There was those briefings in several national newspapers last weekend speaking about a certain unease about the leadership of Leo Vradker and kind of saying we're not at a heave, but people are restless. People are concerned that the poll numbers are down. Now, the Taoiseach has been asked about this today, very firmly saying it. that... Uh, he he feels he has the backing of the majority of his party. He's leading from the front. He will lead into the next election. But there is certainly disquiet there. And it seemed very concerted last night that he felt he needed to address the party. Uh, I spoke to a minister today who would be quite close to Leo Varadkar who said they felt all those briefings were just damaging overall to Fine Gael. It doesn't help anybody, really.
3: I, I think really the ultimate test within Fine Gael is the local and European elections this time next year. And I think if that goes badly, Fine Gael, mm-hmm. then I think we're into different territory between now and then we have a whispering campaign that's moved up a notch with the uh, stories in last weekend's papers. And obviously this poll uh, isn't particularly good news for Leo Varadkar from his point of view, unfortunately. So I, but I I, I I don't get the sense there's anything material yeah. going on until such time as they get close to those local and European elections.
0: And of course, we'll have an extra MEP in those European uh, yes.
3: elections next year on account of population growth. And we but don't, don't know, know
1: what constituency. Uh,
0: yes, and we don't know uh, indeed either how many uh, new TDs we'll be having. But uh, what we do know. Um, and it was highlighted again this week, David, is that data centres, consumers and households have been cutting back on their energy consumption, but the energy consumption from data centres has been exploding.
3: Well, it it is a really interesting thing that um, consumers have been insulating houses, um, switching from boilers to heat pumps, putting in solar panels, being more cautious with their consumption of electricity. All of that has been going on. And then at the same time, there has been a 400% increase in the consumption of electricity by data centres. So in 2015, they were using 5% of the country's electricity. They're now using 18% of the country's electricity, almost a fifth. So at the... The other concern is that we ran into a situation this week where there was an amber alert, which means large industrial users are asked to uh, use other sources of power other than the electrical grid uh, or to stop using as much power to create a little bit of breathing room. So there's questions being asked about how the government is managing all of this. Should there be some overall body to manage the data centres instead of it being scattered across some government departments and some commercial semi-states. And ultimately, does the government have a proper hold on this? It did put a block on some data centres joining the uh, national the, the, the grid. However, some of them set up as islanded data centres where they're not on the electrical grid, but they're using gas exclusively. So it seems there are a lot of questions about this.
0: Uh, Yes, and certainly that's one that doesn't appear to be going away. I think we'll be hearing more and more because especially as we're going to have to be buying in, aren't we? Extra
1: generation capacity. We've had to do that before to pull in generations. Um, Last year we were even doing it, although I was at a a news conference by the Workers' Party who um, we wouldn't usually hear from and they said the only option to decarbonise as quickly as possible and guarantee um, cheap electricity was to go nuclear, to build six nuclear plants in three different locations at a cost of 50 billion euro, follow the French model and... where in France they generate 80% of their electricity. So on the basis of six nuclear plants in three places, then you wouldn't have that issue, would you? Offshore is going to be the great leap forward, isn't it? They say you could do that as well. But basically what they do have a big problem is the onshore wind farms, which they say are never going to do it. And this idea of you saying trying to push down demand, um, workers Party say you don't necessarily have to do that if if you're generating your own power and it's cheap.
2: The government seems to be very much treading a line on data centres of stressing the value of these companies to the economy because we know that they don't employ the people in the data centres themselves, but they do employ people elsewhere, whether it's call centres uh, or other kind of back office type positions and they in really large numbers and there is always the thousand
1: opp- think was the yeah and the there is always the,
2: the the sort of the opposition would accuse the government of there being a kind of a trade off Ireland agrees to host the data centers in order for the jobs and the contribution yeah. to the economy uh, the government wouldn't quite put it so bluntly but they have been very much stressing that we need the data centers
3: i mean when people download this podcast where are they downloading it from data you know when we're using email data sending photographs videos listening to uh Things are streaming stuff from the internet. Data, data, data. Apparently there's
1: no cloud. There's something else. Well, there's data. no clouds at all. We're getting a lot of
0: sunshine. <laughs> let's, um, let's take our eyes away from Leinster House for a moment before we wrap up uh, and look across to... Um, it's really been a remarkable week in the House of Commons. And Boris Johnson, and we had the latest uh, development today with this. We finally saw the report from the House of Commons Uh Parliamentary uh, Privileges Committee. Privileges Committee, yeah. Yeah, and the 90-day suspension after his row leaking the contents of the... But but anyhow, it's all gone totally mad. It's like Trump with a thesaurus, really, from Boris Johnson at the moment, isn't it?
1: I suppose, yes, it is. The question is, is is this the end of the, the book or is it the beginning of a new chapter? Some suggestions that... Um, Nadine Doris has stood down Boris Johnson may stand in her own constituency and nimbly avoid having to be suspended for 90 days altogether um, I mean the finding of the Privileges Committee was damning to say that he had misled the House this never happened and he did it and he did it repeatedly but does that necessarily mean in, in the world that we live in um, where leaders seem to represent an idea and their personal um, failings um, don't necessarily count that much is this just something else that Boris Johnson is able to brush off and march on?
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. We're seeing, you know, Donald Trump in the United States indicted in a federal court, but the front runner in the, you know, Republican mm-hmm. uh, field at the moment, and certainly out and about,
1: and you know, and the man man who started off, Silvio Berlusconi. Yes, that idea of a business leader who became a politician who controlled the media, um, passed away this yeah. um, year, but his um, or this uh, this week, but his legacy lives on.
2: I think the key uh, contribution from Boris Johnson last Friday, when he resigned in that really excoriating letter, uh, astonishing letter that he he sent, was the phrase "for now" that he was leaving for now. So he certainly is contemplating a comeback. It could be in that other seat, uh, as Paul mentioned, which could happen quite soon. We've been told that these by-elections that are necessitated mm-hmm. that they uh, will happen quite quickly. So it looks like the roller coaster of UK politics is just going to continue for the next while.
0: Yeah, there's the vote next. I mean, it's all like I was saying this morning on Morning Ireland. It's like the Tories doing succession you know and and it's not particularly great now on Monday we're going to see you know the House of Commons how many Tory MPs will back this report from the Mm. privileges how many of them will back Boris
1: even though the Tories had a majority on the committee itself they came to the conclusion that their former Prime Minister was lying repeatedly
0: yeah there you go you couldn't make it up as they say we (laughs) hope we hope we weren't making it up here today. We were trying to fill you in on what's uh, what's been going on this week. We'll be back next week uh, to do the same again. Follow, like and subscribe as you will. And until next Thursday, it's goodbye.